Hi friends, it's Brittany Moses, and you're listening to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast, the podcast at the intersection of faith, mental health, and wellness, where we get to dive into expert insights and the realities of those with lived experience to help us live more insightful, connected, and wholehearted lives. We understand that the views shared here are respectively held by each individual and is not a substitute for professional care or an alternative to seeking personal help from your clinician or provider and is ours to discern. So sit with us. This podcast episode is brought to you by UHSM HealthShare, a unique healthcare membership on a mission to create holistic wellness for the mind, body, and spirit. I'm honored to partner with UHSM and its community of faithful members. Together, we plan to create more awareness and programs around mental health and the role it plays in our overall balanced health. If you or someone you know is frustrated with their current health care, I encourage you to inquire about membership options at www.uhsm.com or call 1-800-900-8476. Welcome to another episode of the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. So glad you're here deciding to spend your time with us today. Today, we're talking all about OCD, also known as obsessive compulsive disorder. And I have uh, my friend here, Justin Hughes, who's going to, we're going to have a conversation about this. He is the owner of Dallas Counseling, as well as a clinician and writer who is passionate about helping those impacted by OCD. He serves on the IOCDFS, OCD, and Faith Task Force and is the Dallas Ambassador for OCD Texas. Working with a diversity of clients, he is also dual trained in psychology and theology. We love that. Regularly helping anyone to understand the interaction between faith and OCD. So we really wanted to talk about the basics of OCD, maybe for those who aren't familiar or for those who are now beginning to understand OCD because of their own experience or through the experience of a, of a loved one. Um, so Justin, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. How are you doing today? Brittany Moses. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh God, I'm so excited to, to be here as we talked about uh, before we started to record it's just really neat to show up uh, as friends and yeah. to to have a conversation and get to know you more and understand the the sphere that you're working in that it, that really intersects for us. So uh, really excited to be here today, Brittany. Yeah, we kind of have that uh, same intersection. And it's funny because yeah. like for me, for the podcast, it's one of those things where it's like there are people who are seeing who I'm seeing who are doing work that it's just like in my mind, I'm like, oh, I want to I want to connect with them. Like I want to yeah. I want to have a conversation with them, but it's just like a matter of time. And so we've actually been connected for a while, but I'm glad that we just finally were like, hey, let's connect. Let's have this conversation um, and and take it from there. Absolutely. So before we dive in, uh, first, Justin, can you tell us a little about yourself and what led you into the work that you're doing today for those who aren't familiar? Yeah. So first of all, Justin Hughes, um, follower of Jesus, um, period. And I love my wife, Emily, love my kids, Hattie, who's five, Levi, who's two, uh, the littles at home keep us busy. Uh, keep us sane and <laughs> and on the edge of it <laughs> every single day. Um, <laughs> parenting definitely is, as my brother told me, the hardest job I would ever love. 
Um, and I love my job, love my work. <laughs> I've loved a lot of work that I've done, but it is uh, hard, hard work, but it's very rewarding. Uh, and I'm massively passionate about uh, God's kingdom come and in this uh, sphere of mental health. And interestingly enough, I find myself in this very niche uh, or niche sphere of OCD. How in the world did I get here? I still don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think I know a little, but it, it, I learn a little bit more every single year, but then there's still things that I'm not, I don't know, but but I'm here and that's okay. <laughs> I love that. So uh, when I'm going to back it up, do, do we have time for me to yes, do kind back of- Back it up, back. Okay. I was yeah. like, back that thing up. I'm like, yes. it's not type of podcast. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> all, all grace here. To... <laughs> so um, ultimately I took, I was fortunate to take a Christian college class in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, psychology um, up in Minnesota, Northwestern uh, College, not, not university. So it's a Christian school, uh, which is the uh, alma mater of Dallas Jenkins, you know, in the, I took this class and fell in love with understanding how people think. And I remember telling my parents one Sunday, I was coming home from church, that I thought that I wanted to continue to study psychology, which is very curious looking back at my family, a family of all sorts of different careers, but no one in psychology or anywhere close, uh, I would have actually expected almost maybe a little bit more pushback or raised eyebrows like, what? Or, uh, especially in the Christian world with psychology, it, it can be a love-hate relationship. It's complex. Some people love it. Some people hate it, everything in between. And they were like, great, that's awesome you think you want to pursue this? And they were just really encouraging. And it, it just fit. And I kept sticking with it. So I went to Crown College in Minnesota, as my friends tease me, Clown College, very small Christian school. It had a football team. Uh, football. So not Northwestern, but uh, in a small town called St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, and got my psychology degree. And it was excellent. Um, but I implicitly knew that I need to keep going because I wanted to work directly with people. Uh, in the practical application side, which is you know, counseling and therapy. So um, ultimately ended up at Dallas Theological Seminary for my graduate training, um, which uh, trains clinicians in the practice of psychology and in counseling. Uh, you don't choose a specialization at the master's level. Uh, typically that's PhD programs. Some master's levels do that. Uh, and so it just started out really general. And that's what I did for the first several years, um, general counseling, uh, addiction specialization, first and foremost, you can uh, see back here, I have this periodic table of yeah, the intoxicants, so yeah. intoxicating substances um, that comes from my uh, original days of working with addictions. And it still comes to play for sure uh, in a secondary way now for OCD and anxiety disorders, where I spend all of my time. Uh, but I fell in love with the people. Uh, that's the story of how I got into working with OCD and how I stay in this realm. Uh, it can be some really complex work. As soon as I started to specialize, uh, where at least 50% of my practice was in OCD or more, 
my client load of what I could handle had rapidly decreased. <laughs> so I was seeing 50% less clients <laughs> just because of the complexity. But mm -hmm. what I loved were the people. And it's, it's still strange in some ways, but it's not in others. So it's strange because I don't have OCD. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had a lot of life experiences that put me in tune with things that I can uh, empathize and sympathize with, but not at the level of somebody who really, really suffers with OCD. Um, but I just really fall in love with working with the people. And it was that first client. I don't even remember who they were, but it's like their profile, so to speak. I, I remember working with uh, at the clinic where I got my training um, here, Meyer Clinics. Um, and in the day hospital, I, I didn't have specific training for OCD, but my supervisor had pointed me to the OCD workbook, which is pretty solid, got some really good stuff. And I remember how kind this person was that I worked with, and yet how much suffering he was going through. And when he couldn't put two and two together, I gave him <laughs> what for me is now the most simple, basic handout I could give to a patient, a description of the OCD cycle. And it was like I gave that man buried treasure. He thanked me profusely. This has never been explained to me this way before. This makes so much sense. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm just this green, lowly intern <laughs> that doesn't know my way around OCD, but that left this indelible mark. I didn't realize it at the time, but people kept showing up in my life. And I think God oftentimes works through that. Uh, I, I do think that God works in supernatural ways to make those things happen. And then I also think that God develops our heart. And, and if we open our heart towards him, uh, changes our heart, moves our heart in different ways. So just kept on seeing folks that suffered, um, but oftentimes didn't have a lot of solutions or answers to one of the literally most debilitating medical or mental conditions on the face of this planet. Yeah. Um, and so then when I started to come across more folks, instead of just having to refer them to somebody who is more expert, I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to understand it. I wanted to treat it. And so I started to uh, to study more. And I'd reached out to a local expert that I sat under and got some supervision from just separately, privately, just paid her uh, to, to learn um, from her and off to the races. And so just from there, I started to knock out every formal training that I could, go to conferences, uh, get educated, do consultation. And still to this day, if there's a new training that comes up or whatever else, I, I love it, but it's still, it's just people driven. Um, yeah. And part of the mystery of that too, is I'm also an introvert. Most people don't know that, but <laughs> I'm definitely an introvert. Like I get charged up on my alone time. Mm -hmm. um, but I do love people. And so yeah. this, this is this interesting, if you will, ministry uh, the, that God has given. Oh, I love this so much. And it's one of the reasons why I asked this question, because one of the common threads when I tend to ask these questions amongst people like yourself who are in this work is that there really is a, 
a genuine love there for, for people, whether it's sparked because of someone that they've encountered in their lives who Mm. has been going through this and struggling or whether it's been their own experience, you know, and, and I hope that those who are listening, who may be on the other side of this are hearing that there are those who are Mm. in this work, who are in this field who aren't there, you know, just to pay their bills or, you know, just because, um, they need to get by or what have you, or they're just at being doing professional work. But yeah, those a lot of the people who are in this field who are doing this work. It's because they have found a love for it. They found a calling mm-hmm. for it. They've your experience on it so much like mine. Once I took my first psychology mm-hmm. class and started getting into it, it just felt there was just a click. Like it was just fitting. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I felt graced for it in yeah. a way that I didn't feel for anything else where it was just like, Oh, this makes sense to me. This feels yeah. right. This is connecting in my brain. Like yeah. I feel yeah. wired for this. Absolutely. Um, and so, uh, I appreciate you sharing all of those things. Um, cause mm-hmm. I think I, I would love for that to be encouragement for those who maybe are struggling, whether it's OCD or anything or anxiety or what have you, um, to know that there are people on the other side of this who really do have a heart to walk this journey with you, um, in everything that Justin has expressed just now. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things uh, I now share this quite a few places, so this may be redundant to anybody who's listened to me other places, but in second Corinthians, it talks about uh, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble Yeah, uh, with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Now, yes, sometimes that's I'm working with somebody with a really different experience and and I I know like I'm called to love everyone and, and so, but I really, really see some of those distinctive ways that God uses those specific comforts, of course, like who better to help a fellow alcoholic than somebody who has been through it, right? Who better than somebody who gets OCD, lives in that realm, is passionate about it, as opposed to somebody who is getting resentful and annoyed that uh, somebody <laughs> is uh, struggling with compulsions that they don't understand. What? Why do we set up these artificial expectations that we're supposed to do it all, as opposed to look at scriptures and the fact that it specifically talks about gifts. Curiously enough, faith is, some people have the gift of faith, right? Like I, I looked at that historically and I'm like, well, wait, what am I supposed to? Yes. Like some people truly have a special gifting and that means it's going to flow in, in different ways. And yeah. so, um, gosh, yeah, that could be a whole side note on the right. counseling side or whatever else, but, um, it's, uh, <laughs> to, there are people out there who get it. They understand it. They love it. And I thought that it would almost be a barrier that I didn't have OCD. Actually, what I've found is a lot of people find that encouraging, that if you can get OCD that much, if pe- people regularly are like, yeah, yeah. So when you experience OCD, <laughs> what happens? I'm like, I can't tell you that because I don't have OCD and people will be shocked. And so what I've found is most people are really encouraged that what? Mm-hmm. If you can get it that well, right? Maybe my spouse, maybe my child, maybe my parents, right. maybe my friend doesn't have to have it to get me to walk with me. 
That's exactly right. <laughs> right. And the power of psychoeducation of just learning um, and really diving into what it is, what are the experiences and what are the stories and just meeting people where they are for starters, yeah. um, because even the way OCD presents is going to be different among people, as I'm sure we'll talk about, um, as with any mental health condition um, and how when you with your first uh, client or person that you worked with, you simply just gave them a tool to help them better understand and that kind of opened up a world of freedom for them yeah. to say, oh my gosh, yeah. I'm, this is the common thing, right? It's like, okay, I'm not just going crazy. Like, it's not just me in my mind. This is, this is something that has common traits yeah. that other people have. It is a thing. And therefore there are ways of, of treating this thing, of, of helping with this thing, because mm -hmm. it's not just some arbitrary thing. Like mm -hmm. it's, exists among other people. And that is so freeing. Um, so I love that. And I think just uh, for starters, you know, for those who are listening, who aren't completely familiar, we're talking about the importance of psychoeducation around OCD. Can you kind of just give us the basics of what OCD is yeah. and um, what are some of the symptoms? Because we hear it said kind of flippantly like, oh, oh I'm so OCD or like uh -huh. she's so OCD because they want things in like perfect place or because they're yep. like maybe type A or super tidy. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, those are the sayings we hear, but don't get me started, are girl. Like, are you triggered yet? Um, but what, what actually is OCD in actual like clinical real terms? Yeah, absolutely. Intrusive, mm -hmm. unwanted, Intrusive, unwanted <laughs> right. thoughts, felt urges, images, the perception of impulses. I'll talk about that here in a second, the difference. Uh, that are recurrent. Mm -hmm. They're persistent uh, and are, are significantly distressing to a person. And that is, that's what an obsession is in OCD. And a compulsion uh, would be simply the response to make that go away, to seek the relief. Now, in technical terms, uh, it's uh, scripted ritualistic patterns of behavior, both overt and mental <laughs> behaviors, uh, that seek relief, um, but are known to not be connected with long-term positive outcomes. So if somebody says, oh, I'm so OCD, um, probably almost always not OCD. If you like it, it's not OCD, as we typically say. Now, yes, there's some complexities there. But uh, generally speaking, if it starts from a pleasure standpoint, I want this neat and clean, or starts from a, I, I do want to dig into my uh, the person that I'm dating's phone to figure out if they're talking to other people. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about OCD. Now, however, if a person intrusively feels the pressure, the, the felt urge, so it's uh, uh, the distinguishment in the, the uh, clinical world is the difference between what we call ego syntonic and ego dystonic uh, obsession. So uh, ego syntonic is basically synonymous. Like I want to, like, I want to pursue this. Like, yeah, I gotta, I've got to make sure that this person that I'm dating isn't talking to somebody else. So yeah, yeah, I want to do this. Whereas people who have relationship OCD 
feel compelled to. They know that they probably shouldn't and it's probably not going to go well, but what if they don't? Uh, what if something bad happens? It starts with a question. <laughs> so usually if it's starting with a statement, that's mm, a potential hint uh, that it's not OCD, not always, um, but it's the intrusive, unwanted thought urges, urges, images, impulses that make it distinctly OCD. Is that sufficiently nerdy for you? <laughs> yeah, that's great. And I, and I think that's a great way to separate the two. Um, and I'm glad that you brought it up and kind of uh, broke it down, but in a simplified way. It's like, it's something that you just want to do. It's just like, mm. oh, I, or I'm maybe even just slightly agitated if something's out of place and I want to clean it. Like, yeah. that's very different than having intrusive thoughts having compulsions having this extreme tension that's only relieved yeah. unless you carry out these rituals or what have you um yeah. i'm glad you made that distinction because otherwise we'll all just kind of self-diagnose ourselves with these things yeah. and i think that's as a compliment <laughs> to ocd sufferers um on the positive side when people get it wrong um most everybody on the human spectrum understands what it's like to be obsessive about something and compulsive about something. But when we're talking about OCD, we mean some very specific things. Obsessions in addiction are different than obsessions on social media, are different than obsessions in uh, relationship, uh, obsessions in bipolar disorder, obsessions in OCD. We mean something very, very, very specific. And the really cool thing is that um, OCD has hidden in plain sight for centuries. Uh, so I, I didn't even mention this, Brittany. I'm writing a book <laughs> and okay. uh, working title, basically a, a Christian guide for obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and in it, I'm documenting uh, part of the history of mm. OCD. And here's something super, super cool. It was actually clergy that were first on the front lines in spotting it and documenting it and talking about it. Mm. And frankly, clergy still are. Even in 2023, <laughs> the yeah. evidence tells us that people are most likely. So doctors are second. Doctors are the second most likely uh, as in, you know, primary care, et cetera, to hear about it, but it's going to be clergy. And for yeah. centuries, clergy have been documenting these distinctive instances of obsessions that, that are different. And so, for example, um, uh, one of the peculiar things that has been noticed is what's called preservation of insights, despite mm. the irrationality of the obsession. So uh, a person who has OCD, uh, first of all, typically feels pretty embarrassed by their thoughts. Let's take postpartum OCD. I mean, I had a bunch of postpartum intrusive thoughts, even as a guy mm. uh, with babies screaming in my ears and sleepless nights and things like that. Uh, and like I always felt for my wife all the more because here her body's doing all these wild changes and, yeah. and obviously you're, you're a mom. So um, <laughs> feel free to weigh in here, but um, uh, it is extraordinarily common to have postpartum intrusive thoughts. So what are examples of this? 
uh, child screams <laughs> in one's ears, running on no sleep. And I have the thought of, oh my goodness, I have to escape this. <gasps> Does that mean I just wanted to abandon my child? Or uh, the thought of throwing the baby down pops into someone's mind intrusively. And they're like, oh my goodness, what does this say about me? <laughs> most people, research tells us that most people, about 98% of people endorse intrusive thoughts. Basically everybody has some sort of intrusive thought. Yeah. Uh, Winston Churchill didn't have OCD, but it's well documented that he stayed far back from the train platform because he was afraid of having a thought like, what if I threw myself onto the rails? He didn't want it, which makes it intrusive. <laughs> so I could go on and on about this, but uh, back to the, the postpartum example. Um, uh, first of all, OCD, its onset can happen for a lot of folks at that point, uh, though on average, uh, 19 is that, that median age where, or average age that's uh, that it's going to show up by. But I've met a bunch of clients in their 20s and 30s where they had that later onset. Uh, and maybe that was uh, the event uh, that they link, which, <laughs> spoiler alert, OCD has no direct linkage to trauma. <laughs> I'm just going to say that loud and clear because that is a whole thing that mm. gets all tripped up. Um, trauma absolutely needs to be treated and can connect in cases and sometimes needs its own focus, um, but it doesn't have to be trauma. So uh, we uh, have studied this at the highest levels. So lest I, okay, I'm going to come back. <laughs> Postpartum onset OCD. Uh, most people can understand. Yeah. 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 Of course, intrusive thought. And it's a, a compliment to OCD sufferers, but the thing that really um, blocks people and and I think does some real harm not intentionally is when people flippantly say I'm so OCD because I would say that most of my clients have come in saying that I didn't think that this was me I thought it was the neat and tidy I thought it was the demanding person the the jerk that had to have it their way almost more akin to narcissism and the more that we use specific language in a generalized way to reflect something, it's just, it's going to miss the mark. And a lot of people um, don't get treatments or delay it um, because these words have been used inappropriately. Yeah. And they think that it looks a certain way when really it's mm -hmm. been kind of like insidiously in your life in, yeah. in a more real way. Yep. And I appreciate yep. you talking about intrusive thoughts too, because that will spark on its own level of anxiety and feeling like just because that thought exists, that means you have yeah. to act on it or what have you. Um, I went down a whole TikTok rabbit hole of intrusive thoughts and apparently nice. everyone on TikTok is having intrusive thoughts. So I hear what you're saying here. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that being said, um, while I know that there are different types of OCD that you talked about, whether it's postpartum or um, even religious OCD or um, relationship OCD, is there, I'm kind of want to paint a picture here um, because like you said, it doesn't always look like what people think it looks like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most common behaviors that you see or that you hear of 
that mm-hmm. might be signs that it might actually be a form of OCD. Yeah. Um, again, yeah. no one here to like self-diagnose, but just <laughs> if you yeah. hear some of these things, maybe they sound familiar, might be worth looking into. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so uh, washing and checking still would be the majority of manifestations slightly, you know, it's so 50 to 60% roughly of uh, people with OCD uh, will have washing and checking behaviors, maybe a little bit more. I need to consult uh, some of those studies, but it's it's a slight majority of folks that will have something with decontamination, hand washing, showering. And by the way, for listeners, we're not talking about a little extra scrub here and there. We're not talking about using a toilet paper to open the bathroom door. I do that. <laughs> I've seen what guys do in bathrooms. <laughs> uh, and we're talking about the back to the the definition that it's it's obsessive and intrusive and it can't stay contained to so for example even if a person were to put a limit of having a one hour shower per day it will not stay contained to that so the great thing about catching OCD is all you have to do is start to set some personal limits and it will always try to grow beyond that Mm. um whereas uh, a person that just has a, a few issues or a few problems or maybe a few traits or whatever, they they can more readily turn that off or self-motivate to, to change those things. Uh, so washing and checking can be in the obvious ways where pandemic-wise, uh, like, uh, do I need to clean my boxes? Do I need to wash down my groceries? Do I need to, you know, whatever it happens to be. Most everybody was thinking about that. Right. But people with OCD... Uh, we're well past uh, the the general consensus that people didn't have to do that. Those were the folks that felt like they had to, not because they rationally would argue it most of the time, um, but because they felt that urge, like, but just just in case. And we oftentimes call OCD the doubting disease. It's it's the mm-hmm. the just in case. It's the the what if? What about that one percent chance? I'm not willing to tolerate. Uh, if it's even one percent, if it's 0.001 percent chance that I could get my family sick, uh, I I won't do it, even if it seems irrational. So those are going to be the obvious ones. Now, um, some other very common ones, a lot of harm-related obsessions, hidden run OCD. So hit a speed bump in immediate fear. Was that a person? Was that a body uh, hitting a bump? Uh, so clients will. Uh, here's the difference between OCD and just the average. Like, yeah, I've hit something really big in my car. Dallas has terrible potholes. Oh, I know. I live <laughs> there. It feels like I'm running over a longhorn yeah. sometimes when I hit them. And uh, yeah, I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, especially in a highly crowded area or Walmart parking lot or whatever it happens to be. I'll have that thought, right? Intrusive thought. Like, oh my goodness, was that a body? Uh, the person with OCD can't get that out of their head. They're going to go back. They're going to check clients that will endure driving an additional multiple hours. Uh, so clients that are on business trips and driving across Texas multiple hours and turning around several hours to go back because they just couldn't resist getting into that urge. What if I hit somebody three hours ago? <laughs> right. And the average person is going to be able to do much quicker business with that. It's not going to bother them, affect them as much. So harm uh, is a subset of harm. It can be really any number of things. I think it's really important that I uh, mention POCD, um, pedophile OCD, which is the fear of what if 
so um, uh, when people have kids, they can have these harm thoughts of what if I wanted to drop my child when I was changing them? Um, but they can also uh, have a moment where that little little baby is resting resting their head on the shoulder. And it's just such a sweet moment. And they feel this elation, this pleasure. And in the body, oxytocin and dopamine and the same things that happen when we connect with our spouse. And people then can start to check their feelings and be like, oh my goodness, I felt like this, this weird positivity that I've only felt with sex with my wife before. Oh my goodness, what do I do? And people walk away from that and maybe they hand off their baby to a loved one. And, and I've worked with, with clients that um, were so deeply rooted in these things that they set up all these extra distances and provisions and were missing out. It was breaking their heart. They were missing out on time with kids, not because they were actually at risk of harming their kids. Quite the contrary. They were the safest individual to be around their kids, but who were afraid that somehow if they could have some confusing positive feeling that they didn't know what it was and then this intrusive thought comes in of what if that's sexual what if that's that's what ocd does and i i want to be really really clear to the listeners um that these are actually very common manifestations but oft not talked about or wrongly linked with inappropriate desires, inappropriate behaviors, like actual you know, pedophilia and so forth. So, so important that we talk about this is a common manifestation of OCD and people who are the safest people in the world to be around. I would trust, yeah. uh, uh, take it as the average, average population. <laughs> I would rather that person babysit my kids than uh, just some random other person that I know doesn't have OCD, but I don't know. It's yeah. more likely uh, in my mind that that person is going to be safe. Yeah. I really, really appreciate the honesty of this because these are, I feel like the types of conversations that you um, learn about in clinical training, you hear yeah. about these things, but I think yeah. the general population or the yeah. world does yeah hear the honesty of what people are really deeply darkly yeah. struggling with well in and social that's what keeps them from getting help yep yeah yeah and social media is uh is interesting here we we're just talking about obviously the good that happens as well yeah. uh social media is um kind of an amplifier in my mind of human behavior. So if it's yeah. good stuff, great. <laughs> like I've connected with more advocates like yourself and more people in the past several years than ever before across state lines and uh, and so forth. And also just heard some of the darkest, deepest, most negative, discouraging. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to stuff. me, when I hear this stuff, when I hear stuff like that, it doesn't make me like, oh my gosh, what can you, mm -hmm. it makes me more, more just drawn, like honesty. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Like, let's get to those really taboo, really just things that seem off the wall yeah. because chances yeah. are there are other people who are deeply, deeply struggling yeah. with these types of things, especially yeah. the postpartum stuff. I've heard that a lot about yeah. women who are just afraid that they're going to harm their child or they have that, you know, intrusive thought or whatever it yeah. is, yeah. you know, and just really, again, just speaking out about the intrusiveness yeah. of things. Um, because there might be some people who are listening who may not 
have OCD, but they have experienced intrusive thoughts. So I think this is a great time to even just pull that out, that Mm -hmm. intrusive Mm -hmm. thoughts happen. They're uncommon. It's when we have these thoughts that come up that they are not, they're unwanted. Mm -hmm. And we're just like, why am I even having this thought? And it's Mm -hmm. scary to even be having those types of thoughts, especially because they seem so extreme or you think because you're thinking that that automatically means that it Mm -hmm. might be something that you act on. And that is not the case. Intrusive thoughts are a thing. They happen, they come up and they, we, they can, you know, I kind of see them as a wave, you know, they rise, they can rise Mm -hmm. and they can fall. But again, with OCD, those tend to be more serious because they don't Mm -hmm. just fall. They tend to linger around much longer and have a lot of checking and Mm -hmm. a lot of um, avoidance behavior, which makes them bigger. And so that being said, you know, what are some things someone may do that actually makes OCD worse Mm -hmm. um, versus things that may make it better? Yep. Anything that gives the obsession credit is the simple answer. Exactly. Um, Start with the simplicity of that. Um, in actual practice, it's trickier because, uh, all sorts of habit patterns and emotions and how the brain works, uh, is actively working against a person in recovery. Uh, so yeah, as human beings, you know, research tells us, and I think scriptures tell us that we have this negativity bias, um, that given if we have 10 situations, a majority of our interpretations about those situations will be negative on average. And this negativity bias is on steroids, if you will, uh, with OCD. So at first, we could really see with research in neuroscience that uh, some areas like the amygdala, you know, seat of uh, emotions and especially fear uh, and those survivalistic uh, emotions uh, really lights up. Uh, so it's hyperactive uh, in in OCD. And um, Jeffrey Schwartz, actually, UCLA, holla! <laughs> uh, Simul, uh, neuroscience, right? Yeah, um, I was there. I was doing not an OCD and schizophrenia, but yeah, I was at Simul. <laughs> oh, yeah, beautiful. That's cool. Um, yeah, so Jeffrey Schwartz, kind of the first main person to at least bring it into public light, the neuroscience mm. uh, of OCD. And then uh, the anterior cingulate gyrus, uh, which is kind of middle parts of the brain uh, implicated in that uh, decision-making. It's kind of like the shifter. Um, so if I feel, uh, yeah, I'll just use an in-the-moment example. Um if if I'm afraid of public speaking, which I have been historically, uh, I have done my own exposure therapy with public speaking, and I can confidently assure you it works. It helps, <laughs> uh, which is great. Like I feel, uh, of course, I have a little bit of anxiety jumping on a podcast, but it's just it's a different world for me now with that. So anyway, as that side encouragement in OCD. Uh, the shifter between fear and making that decision, it's its like it's broken. It's stuck for anybody who knows manual transmissions. It's like it's stuck in first gear and it's revving up and getting real hot <laughs> and just like, oh my goodness, like I, I can't make a decision. Like, do I hang out with this person? Do I not? Do I go out? Do I not? Do I wash and decontaminate my groceries? Do I not? Do I tell somebody that maybe I could harm somebody or not? Do I go back and check whether I ran over somebody or not? Do I check on this relationship or not? Do I check their phone or not? 
their brain gets stuck. And it really helped to have these pictures of the brain. Um, and I think that's just a reality that sometimes we need a picture. But the thing that I honestly feel sad about is that, especially in the church, mm. we're called to, to love, period, right? Even in the absence of evidence, even the absence of pictures of the brain that document these things, and you can hold it up and say, here's the brain on OCD. Right. Here's the brain not. Yeah, they're not just uh, possessed. And we do a whole conversation. Yeah, a whole other conversation. Uh, happy to go there today at any point. <laughs> I know. And what what's really interesting in my research for the book, um, I was really encouraged because I discovered that not only were clergy on the front lines of helping with the limited resources that they had, uh, they weren't doing what people falsely attribute them uh, as, as doing, aka, yes, of course, there were some clergy, but not consistently, not everyone across the board was just linking it with demon possession or you're in sin or you're wrong. Yeah, a lot of the definitions uh, and recommendations had some spiritual underpinnings for sure or strong spiritual recommendations. Um, but there there were some some folks that really got it and wrote about it. And that just encourages me a lot. If that can happen in the 1500s, dark ages, literally, 1600s, 1700s, like if we can love <laughs> and show up and talk to the Lord and the Lord doesn't give us, like it, we have to face so much uncertainty, but that doesn't matter. We can still exercise faith. Um, that that's really key for the OCD sufferer if if they're willing to go that direction. And especially when I get to work with Christians, I work with people of all backgrounds and mm-hmm. um, all belief systems and religions or none. Uh, and I really like that actually. Um, and I really like helping people of, of all backgrounds here. But when I get to go a little bit deeper into the Christian faith integration, um, now we can look at it in say, yeah, we've got some pictures and, and yes, some of the things aren't just completely decisive. We still don't know the cause of OCD. Um, and so like when I said with trauma, for example, could it be? Well, sure, but it's also been studied extensively and is very inconclusive because there's cases where there's uh, extreme trauma or no trauma and the onset happens. Um, and it's it's very very interesting to look there's still a lot that we don't know but fine that's okay i can still be faithful where i'm at and that's exactly what a person with ocd has to do because everything in their brain everything in their body um depending on how severely they're wrestling with it uh is going to be screaming at them just check you got it come on like you got to be sure like, what extra trouble is it to just go back to the Walmart and just make sure you didn't run over anybody? Or why don't you go ahead and confess to your Bible study group um, uh, the the fact that 
you were walking down the street and you found uh, another woman cute. <laughs> and you know what? Why not just tell your spouse just in case? Just in case is always the phrase. But it's never just one. <laughs> uh, it's never, it, it builds because of how fear works. Fear generalizes. It's how it's supposed to work. So if I learn that uh, there's something that I need to be afraid of, you know, whether it's a sickness or an illness or another person, right? Or an actual person who is risky or toxic or whatever else, um, then my brain is now aware that this is a possibility and I'm going to look for other ways of that possibility. So one doorknob being dirty will never just be one doorknob being dirty. It's going to generalize to other things. And if I have to wash my hand after touching every doorknob or shaking every hand, then I will have to keep doing that. And then it's going to generalize further. It's going to say, well, I didn't touch a doorknob, but the guy that I sat across didn't look very clean. <laughs> and that thing that I picked up felt a little sticky and it just grows and grows and grows. And so um, hopefully the listener can imagine all the different ways that this can grow, not uh, not even just within a specific obsession, such as contamination or harm to another person, but it can start to jump different types because any human fear can be implicated in OCD because it's the the I call it the disorder of all disorders because if there's a if there's a a problem that any person can face, OCD will latch onto it. So back to your original question, yeah, yeah. Um, what do you do? You find the ways to not give it credit. And it has to start simply. Usually we say work with a hierarchy. That's a very behavioral tool, um, but it's a very behavioral treatment in many ways. Um, so if uh, it depends on how deeply impacted a person is too. If I'm showering for two hours a day and I'm not leaving my house, or if I am, I'm staying in my car and getting curbside pickup and uh, uh, having the person <laughs> put it in the trunk and not even hand it to me and so forth. Well, it, that is heavily impacted. That'll be very, very severe to work with and it takes more time. There's a lot more layers there, but simply put, it's going to be the reversal of those things to get to a place of doing what the average person would do. And sometimes just a little further, I do want to say that aloud that um, exposure and response prevention, which is the treatment of choice. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> um, I was hoping you'd say the words exposure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and response prevention. It doesn't mean it's the only way. It has to be the only way. It's right. just uh, the best we have at this point. I'm open hands if you can show me something better. And, and also some people uh, really, really try it and it doesn't work. But that's that's in the vast minority of, mm -hmm. of people who really stick with it. Um, yeah. uh, and don't, anybody listening that has tried it, there's no shame there, if that's the case. There, there truly are those cases where people really, really stick with it. Well, humans are very complex. Yeah. The brain is complex. So, okay. And there's a lot of factors. But exposure and response prevention is, I simply face the thing that elicits distress. <laughs> And I don't do the compulsive thing, which prevents me from learning <laughs> that maybe I can handle it in the first place. And maybe it's going to be okay. Because every time I prevent myself from learning, I actually learn that I need to fear it again. So uh, it's 
that extra wash, that extra check, that extra confession to another person makes it worse, drives it deeper. And so response prevention, that's the response that's being prevented is that compulsion, but it's specific to the person, specific to the situation, and has to be done in a way that's doable and sustainable. So usually pretty hierarchical in its approach. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that because uh, the next thing I was going to ask was what are the typical treatments? Because I I wanted to help give some hope here that there are some evidence-based treatments for things like OCD. Mm -hmm. Actually, OCD is like one of the most, I I believe, um, uh, second largest effect size of all mental health. Of all mental health. So this is PTSD is first. Right. And um, which can also involve exposure, Um, really anxiety, really just anxiety in general, like exposure is, yeah. yeah. again, doesn't work for everyone. I know it has worked for me in certain mm-hmm. situations where I knew like, oh, if this is just because I've done the training, you know, I knew in situations that create anxiety for me, I knew, oh gosh, the only way I'm going to get through this is if I just keep going, if I just keep showing up, if I get just keep exposing myself. Um, But what you're talking about was a hierarchical model, which is basically you're doing it little by little um, Mm -hmm. as you're tackling the bigger things. Um, So just wanted to, again, give some hope, give some encouragement that there are uh, treatments for this and that just because it feels debilitating to you or one's life it doesn't mean it always has to be this way or that life is always going to look this way um that this has been studied um this has been worked with and you are not alone and you don't have to navigate it alone Um, that's really what i wanted to highlight Get it, Brittany. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I know I've n- I've never struggled with OCD, but I definitely have um, have experienced extreme anxiety. I've extreme I've experienced panic attacks. I've experienced mm-hmm. you know panic attacks, borderline turning into agoraphobia. You yeah, know, and yeah. and skirting that by actually saying, "Oh no, like I see what's happening here, mm-hmm. and I need to keep exposing myself to being yeah. in." you know, large crowds, or I need to keep exposing myself to being on the subway or in this situation, because I can see that this um, is becoming bigger, right? This is becoming bigger. And my thoughts about it are becoming a little obsessive and it's creating these physical manifestations in my body. And so if I keep avoiding it, avoiding it, it's actually just going to make it bigger And Mm -hmm. I need to actually continue to face it and see that I'm still alive. I survive this every single time and, and reaffirming and retraining our brain to see, oh, this is survivable. Like I've been here before I survived it. I can do it again, you know, and the worst thing that I thought would happen to me did not happen to me, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so that is really the, the, um, really it's just a huge reframing of your brain and restoring these experiences in a new way that aren't as associated with the fears because you're experiencing them with different outcomes. And that's now slowly becoming a a truth for you or what we would say, the renewal of your mind. You know, we love that scripture. And I'm always a person that was like, how, how are we renewing it? That's a very inspirational (laughs) verse, but like, let's be real. How is this happening? Um, So yeah. Um, there are treatments and we talked a little bit how, about how faith can intersect. Do we just kind of wove mm-hmm. that throughout the conversation? So I love that. 
Um, and I love what you were saying about the clergy, because that was also something that I learned was that people will turn to their clergy before they turn to a mental health professional, but also in the dark ages, you know, and in the middle ages, even before there were institutionalized hospitals, um, it was actually the church and the monasteries that would take in not only travelers, but the ill, whether physically ill or mentally ill, who were right. encountering these people That's and right. acting as uh, the soul care for the community, which is why people like you and me are so passionate about involving the church in this, because we realize how much the church is not only on the front lines today, but always has been for those passing through with these difficulties. So, yeah. you know, that being said, I want to talk about, I know we love this topic, faith and uncertainty yeah. and how having a low intolerance for uncertainty can make things worse. How not being able to accept the unknown and accept mm -hmm. uncertainty actually mm -hmm. makes things worse in a framework where I think many of us were raised to have a black and white faith and that we have to have absolutes and knowings in order to have a strong faith. When yeah. I believe it's actually the opposite. I believe yeah. if you can actually sit with not knowing and saying, I don't know the answer to this and I'm not completely mm -hmm. sure, but I trust that God is who he is. And I trust that he's good. And, you know, I think that's actually a real faith, you know? Mm -hmm. Ooh, yeah. So uncertainty, um, <laughs> so much that that we could cover there uh one i suppose since i'm standing in my lane on the the clinical side mm -hmm. first there this has been studied pretty extensively yes. and the two most prominent disorders where what we call an intolerance of uncertainty i you in the literature um, it should be I owe you because, you know, it's like <laughs> I, like yeah. in debt to, you know, figuring out uh, uncertainty mm. uh, is OCD um, and also generalized anxiety disorder, um, which is uh, the, the diagnosis that, that I was given many years ago. Uh, well, one of them, along with uh, what's now called persistent depressive disorder mm. or uh, dysthymic depression for those who are familiar with the old school terminology. Um so intolerance of uncertainty is this uh, strong distress uh, when uncertainty comes about. It doesn't have to be all uncertainty, but especially it is impairing in some specific ways. And uh, I think all humans struggle with uncertainty, of course, where it hits them. You know, right now it's maybe questions of economy um, or bank collapse, Silicon Valley Bank uh, is the recent headline news in the past week uh, and questions of recession or interest rates or, or fill in the blank and uh, war in Ukraine. I was going to say nuclear. <laughs> That's nuclear. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, for some people, these can be somewhat academic <laughs> and uh, human beings definitely wrestle with uncertainty and, and spiritually as well. Um, uncertainty really opens us up to just the vulnerability of being human and, and not God. And when we study the scriptures, if we study the scriptures, <laughs> we discover that um, God 
very clearly does not always make his plan known. And there are some very specific things that he chooses not to make known. And I, I don't know about you, Brittany, but I tend to run in a lot of circles that emphasize the known. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I feel like and you know of of my own tradition. Like I go to a non-denominational Bible church, but it really is of the evangelical tradition. And um, for for all the strengths we have as evangelical Christians, uh, one of the weaknesses is we do not tolerate uncertainty. Well, <laughs> what do you think about that, Brittany? Well, yeah, it was when I went through uncertainty, unplanned, unexpected things in my life that it really reformed my entire faith in relationship with God. And I, I realized that with you, I was like, wow, I built so much of my faith around yeah. what I know, what I'm sure about, what's 100%, what's yeah. this, what's that. And it, and I, that changed me inside out. And I would say to live a more authentic faith yeah. even, but I, I completely agree with you on yeah. that. Yeah. And we've got to do better. I don't know what that's going to look like, but we've, we've, we've got to do better with our theology of uncertainty and faith for sure. Yeah. There's this uh, post that I had come across. I, I don't know them super duper well, but there's a group called kingdom at work. Uh, mm-hmm. And they really focus on the business world and living out one's calling there. And a guy, it, I still don't really know what he does. <laughs> or Cal Zant, I, I got permission to repost an article in my blog of clarity versus trust. And his argument, and I tend to agree with this, is that um, certainty is the opposite of faith. Yep. Yep. What? Like at first I'm like, huh? Because I I would almost think of like sin or something being the opposite (laughs) of faith. But he, in a very concise way, talks about like with certainty, we have no need for faith. Scripture says faith, hope, and love. And these... what what remains is love, right? I won't need to have faith when I get to see Jesus when I'm with him. Um, and I won't need to have hope because my hopes will be realized when I'm eternally with him. And so that being said, love persists, right? But all throughout scriptures, we have, it's not just like these whisperings of, oh yeah, I just gotta persist. You won't know everything. It's like, smack in the face Super job clear. is job <laughs> is suffering and losing his family and fortune and everything and saying why god and god does not let him know why right and we never all throughout scriptures yeah got any clarity mm-hmm. on what yep. happened yeah yeah. And so mystery is uh is one of my favorite words i've learned <laughs> I've learned to actually appreciate that because I myself fought against uh, uncertainty in some ways where I had wondered like, man, do, is it possible that I have OCD or did I have OCD was uh, one when I wrestled with my own fears and doubts and intrusive thoughts about salvation. So when I first um, uh, directly proclaimed faith in Christ, probably about 11, 12, 13, can't remember exactly, which is an intrusive trigger as well. Like, oh, I can't remember. <laughs> is it even true? Uh, am I even saved? <laughs> am I even saved? Yeah. Over several years, just would have maybe a hot moments of a weekend or a week, which is more consistent with generalized anxiety versus OCD, uh, where OCD is going to be that chronic and or episodic, like months or really deeply for several weeks, um, 
but probably be more chronic, generalized as more of the worry of the day, soup du jour. <laughs> so uh, I would have these doubts about salvation. And this, uh, I really love the emphases in, in my tradition of assurance of faith and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. These things are scriptural. These things are real in my experience, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I take them on faith. Um, but often not emphasized would be the mystery, the uncertainty. Well, the the mystery of Christ is already revealed, right? So that's what we believe in. So there's no more mystery. It's like, oh, really? <laughs> right. Have you read Revelation? <laughs> what is that about? Frankly, yeah. Have you read any of the rest of the Bible <laughs> yeah. where uh, to to know and to know fully is God's prerogative, not mine. And the yep. sooner I yep. can cast off the chains, yep. <laughs> the bondage of having to know, yeah, is, isn't that not freedom? Now, it's not casting aside, of course, and it's it, important for me to say this in a conversation like this. Um, it would be reassurance if I've said this many, many times to the same person, but um, uh, it's not casting aside uh, the fact that we can have confidence, right? And the guarantee of the spirit and that uh, to feel certainty or to be confident is uh, is different than what we talk about uh, of tolerating uncertainty in the clinical realm. Yeah, of course, there are things that we, uh, I'm not doubting uh, that you are real, Brittany, for example. I don't think I have, have yeah, exactly. I don't (laughs) have reason to, how can I prove it? Right. like, I mean, Hey, AI is getting pretty good. Chat GPT. I could be one big robot over here. Exactly. And so OCD will play off of possibility, not Mm -hmm. probability, possibility. And the back to the, what if the just in case, and the mind keeps playing tricks by throwing up, <laughs> good good word for it, throwing up, uh, distressing thoughts, urges, images with strong feelings and emotions that go with it. And the inability to move that shifter correctly. And then also in the executive uh, function, there's a lot of executive dysfunction. It's not disability. It's not taken away from the OCD sufferer. They get it back usually when they improve. Um, but uh, all of this suffering mm-hmm. is interesting because it pushes people with OCD or or a disorder that really makes the relationship to uncertainty challenging, like generalized anxiety or anxiety disorders, or or even PTSD or major depression or whatever else it happens to be, it pushes on a person. And I love being able to go deeper for those who are willing to go there because it oftentimes is the greatest. In, In many clients' lives, there's nothing greater in their life that has challenge them to do business with what they really believe mm-hmm. and what they trust in and put mm-hmm. faith in right and, and how they ascertain certainty right 
And I don't think most people are having those conversations. They go into their Bible study or church and they're not thinking through fancy words like epistemology. How do I know what I really know? And how can I (laughs) prove that that's true and fill in the blank? But yeah, um, people who have disorders um, have a gift if they choose to receive it that way, because Mm -hmm. it is the opportunity to, to, do business with things that most people take for granted. And if done in an intentional way and letting God lead, um, I've heard it again and again, people don't wish it upon themselves. They mm-hmm. wouldn't choose for it in the outset, but they ultimately will praise God that it led to their their closer relationship with him. I was just, I just said this the other day. There's something about people who have, whether they've lived with a diagnosis or they've experienced extreme loss, grief, trauma, what have you, mm-hmm. those who do lean in and do the work, like you're saying, and really yeah. lean into this because they are forced to, that's yeah. the kind of advantage yeah. in a way that they have. They're forced to, yeah. they're forced to come across all of these I don't know if I want to say contradictions, maybe with their beliefs or just these different um, juxtapositions. Their life has forced them into these juxtapositions of struggling and life and faith. So they're kind of forced into these, uh, what may start off as a faith crisis um, and to get real about it, which is in a way a gift. I think, of course, like you said, no one would wish it upon anyone, but if they do work through it, I find that they tend to be more spiritually mature because they no longer, they don't spiritually bypass like, Oh, just have faith or just, just, or, you know, they don't use these spiritually bypassing phrases. Mm -hmm. They are able to be more integrated human beings because they can hold multiple truths at the same time, which Mm -hmm. is that, you know, suffering is real and life is difficult, but also, you know, God is present in my life or this, just because I'm experiencing this, I don't have, I don't have to know the answer. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but I'm going to take it one day at a time in faith, right? They're, they're forced to. And I mean, I've had certain turning points in my life where that's been forced as well. So mm-hmm. I, I relate mm-hmm. to that and it completely changed my faith. I want to say it matured my faith. It deepened it. Yeah. Um, and um, maybe that's also why I just kind of tend to gravitate toward this population mm-hmm. and gravitate mm-hmm. toward these conversations yeah. and these environments, because I find that this is where, I don't, it, it's just real here. You know, people are able to hold these things at the same time because they're forced with them under the circumstances of life. And they're able to have more developed thought and faith about these things. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I, 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 I totally agree with you there. And mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. We, we believe that we just have to be certain about everything all the time. And what I have found in my own experience is that it's scary first right? Like Mm -hmm. it's, there's this unraveling that takes place first. That is scary when you're hit with things in life that kind of send you into a faith crisis because you thought that your faith was supposed to help you explain everything. And you thought that your faith was supposed to help make sense of everything, or because you did all the right faithful things that life Mm -hmm. was supposed to go well, you were supposed to be blessed. And then you hit these walls in life where that just doesn't happen. Like that just doesn't turn out to be the experience. Yeah, That's Mm -hmm. real life. And that's the human experience. 
And it's kind of scary for your faith at first, because you may be feeling like, where is God? Or what do I believe about scripture? Or what what does my faith consist of? And, and all of these things. But it, that unraveling doesn't have to lead to uh, nihilism, as people think, like, oh my gosh, if I don't hold tightly to this very controlled faith, then I'm going to become a nihilist that doesn't believe in anything and thinks that life is meaningless. Yes. It doesn't have to. It's really just about integrating this new information about your experiences and the realities of these things mm. with your faith forward and knowing mm. that multiple things can be true at the same time. Mm. And, and God knows that, you know, we just have mm. to kind of develop and mature our faith and our understanding in this yeah. way. And it is real and it is honest. And yeah. it's also just going to allow you to connect with people and support yeah. people and yourself in a more authentic way to where you can have true healing fully show up authentic authentically in life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so you'll, awesome. you'll, you'll just really be able to, um, I'll just say, just live as your true self. You know, um, we've just built a lot of false selves around a lot of ideologies and those things tend to get you really mm-hmm. close to the truth, you know? Yeah. Oh, so well said. And I, that, that phrase building a false self around all these ideologies. Wow. That's, Look, that's I've had a lot of therapy sessions over the past <laughs> few months. So we are, we're just all diving into all of that. So <laughs> Um, that is great. That's a and whole other topic. Yeah. So my goodness, uh, that is a whole other topic. And what, what I believe is the number one barrier mm-hmm. and it, it's, so the reason that I'm writing my book is to speak directly to Christians that while most Christians at least start out <laughs> thinking that's doing the treatment is going to be against their faith or it's a faith issue or it shouldn't even be there if they had greater faith that quite the contrary that there's a way forward and it actually that way forward involves the opportunity for more faith and more growth and more trust and i've seen it with my own eyes so much like yeah. um um stay at home moms uh real estate professionals, pastors, music leaders, entrepreneurs, teachers, therapists, doing this, gosh, you know, like 17 years now at this point, like I have gotten to uh, experience just people from all sorts of, of different backgrounds. And that's the thing that I keep seeing again and again and again and again and again, kind of like um, spotting OCD in the first place that clergy that were working with it enough would be like, oh, well, wait a second. This guy is like the most faithful guy in our congregation. And he's coming in (laughs) uh, saying that he has all these sins to confess and spending hours trying to confess them and go, something, something is amiss. And so I can easily say that, that um, something has a mess when people come in and, and they need to hear that it's it's not a faith issue. Anything can be a faith issue. Yeah, sure. Of course, people are going to come in. They have problems and issues and sin in their life. Yes, of course. Duh, me too. But it's not distinctly uh, a, a faith issue. Uh, OCD may exist in a fallen world, right, that we could connect very indirectly to sin and brokenness, but um, not in any direct way 
that uh, anything else we, we can view, um, you know, cancer exactly. um, similarly, uh, and people draw draw those comparisons. It's just harder back back to the image. Like it helps when Jeffrey Schwartz <laughs> stuffs somebody in a spect tube <laughs> or functional MRI <laughs> and gets a picture, and people are like, oh, okay. Um, but wherever we are, uh, I think that that's the that's the call uh, to to exhibit faith. So if if the suffering is OCD or an anxiety disorder or seeing another person suffer with those things or whatever, the call is the same um, to to walk by faith yeah. and to break down these false ideologies that set themselves up against Christ. And what's interesting is the church is great at sometimes setting those up in different ways, such as demanding certainty <laughs> by saying, well, no, you must be certain in creating these dynamics that are interesting because uh, one, people who have something like OCD uh, actually help reveal those <laughs> those false ideologies that are set up because they're the ones that are going to uh, have to do business with those things and have to have that conversation with the, the pastor to be like, well, w- when you say that I should, um, uh, when I should ask for, for prayer, if I think that I've sinned, <laughs> I need to talk to you about this. And, and this is where having clients talk to their clergy or inviting them into the therapy session goes a long way. Ways. Uh, these are the people that are generally doing business with these things. And so um, I am remarkably hopeful for this frontier of mm. mental health. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the church has a great opportunity and call on its doorstep there will never be enough clinicians and medical professionals and and also there's a lot of stuff that's not just purely medical and clinical there's obviously the spiritual (laughs) and relational we talk a lot about the spiritual so i think like for us you know like we've heard a lot of on bound around i guess spiritual development and things like that so i think i know for me i'll just speak for myself like I know I want to help bring the balance to these other sides and perspectives because I heard all of the spiritual growing up and I heard all the spiritual ideologies Mm -hmm. and all of those things. And now I know when I was going through stuff, I I needed balance. I needed something to talk about the inner workings and these other things. And so I think for those of us who are in this work, it's like, we do care about the spiritual. We know that that's a very core aspect Mm -hmm. of who you are as a human being and of your thoughts, but let's, let's balance out this conversation because it's kind of been leaning so far in one way for such a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And something too, I, most of the time that I've uh, spent in the past couple of years doing podcasts and live streams and so forth, uh, have actually been uh, just more in the uh, clinical workspace and secular workspace um, so this is fun to be able to dig in even more specific. And one of the things that I think is important to say um, is that uh, I need to practice humility mm. and the church needs to practice humility. It is rushing to conclusions. Judgment is one way of putting it is, um, I don't know, it, it, it's not my job. 
<laughs> Wait, what? I thought that is your job, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Of course, I make clinical judgments. Jesus said, judge with right judgment uh, in one one part of scriptures, but then judge not lest you be judged, right? Is the right, uh, right. Uh, partial business. God, God isn't just walking around judging all the, like God, of course, is judge, but in his loving kindness and mercy, right? Even just withholding and through Christ that um, we ultimately are free from that judgment and his long suffering, his, I use that Hebrew word, chesed, loving kindness. Um, So if God is doing that, I especially need to be doing that. But back to the the specific, um, psychology doesn't have all the answers. Psychology at best tells us what mm-hmm. and we need god to tell us why and sometimes he doesn't and on the purpose side of things and so one of the things that i i'm at a much better spot with emotionally i needed to do some of my own work because of some bitterness that was coming up mm-hmm. uh, in my own life um is that I think it's important to call out the church that just because we baptize something as in Jesus name, or I I grew up, was born in 84. And so in childhood, mostly in the nineties, and that was a lot of Christian, especially evangelical culture. (laughs) Yeah. We were the televangelist generation, you know? Yeah. 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 On the TV. Yeah. Oh man. Baptize it. So, you know, if there's, (laughs) Uh, if there's a, a band uh, and they've got some bad words, well, <laughs> you can take their song and change it. You know, the, there's a group called Apologetics that took, you know, popular songs, kind of like Weird Al Yankovic, but the Christian version of change the lyrics and so forth. And Christian T-shirts that would take brands and put like Jesus-y names and so forth. <laughs> that was so interesting. I like describing um, my childhood, yeah. Man, but we're, we're doing that with psychology. I think that there's you know, two more extreme positions. One is just the anti-psychology position that nothing good can come from anything that humans study. And it's like, all right, well, that's another conversation. That's where I get that Jesus is the only wonderful and mighty counselor you need. Like, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Get those comments on Facebook. They're yeah. lovely. Yep. 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 And then we have in scriptures, Cyrus. <laughs> my anointed leader or uh, what what was the exact quote uh cyrus where it talks about the specific purpose and role that god used you know right with a uh, someone who didn't follow him so god is clearly working in all sorts of ways and yes the uh the folks um yeah there's anyway i i don't want to spin off into rabbit holes but the Psychology at best, and where psychology needs to stay in its lane, is that it's at best uh, the the science of observation to tell us what. And so on the Christian side, the humility that I think Christians need to practice is talking to the Lord about these things, first and foremost, and, and praying about these things. And if you have OCD, talk to the Lord, or if you think you have OCD, talk to the Lord. And um, I'm not going to say that ERP has to be the right thing for every person at every time who has OCD. Yeah, it's the gold standard. It's, uh, but what 
I had to do some of my own work with emotionally was just getting so tired and starting to grow bitter of hearing Christians come into my practice again and again and again and again and come from some otherwise really good churches in the Dallas area that I know really well. <laughs> I know people in these churches uh, and they're doing some great stuff, but uh, in some just really uh, non-helpful ways, overly spiritualizing things or trying to point uh, to uh, a Christian uh, uh program that they have at their church. Not raw. I see actually a lot of people that have done any number of those programs that have really helped with their their marriage or working with anger or fill in the blank. But um, the arrogance that I see in the church, I'm just going to put that word out there, the arrogance. <sighs> On my worst of days really discourages me. It is. It's... And I get heartbreaking yeah yeah and i on my worst of days get angry in a bitter way and i know that the scripture imperative yeah. is to put away all bitterness and so that's the work that i've done and still will we'll have to do because of mm-hmm. people coming into the church and in some have been spiritually abused in direct awful terrible ways now that that's still i think the the vast minority um but nonetheless that's important for me to to talk about and be it OCD or other anxiety disorders, how often people are just told, right? It's a faith issue. It's a faith issue. It's a faith issue. Um, what if we just started by saying, I don't know. Exactly. Pray with this. But instead, a lot of people first experience arrogance and on the psychology side, psychology needs to stay in its lane <laughs> by not practicing the arrogance of uh determining ethics and morality right and psychology does mess that up in uh regularly but uh when christians seek me out mm-hmm. um most all will have that uh question like okay like i've done this research or i tried these other things i went to the church i went to a general counselor or a talk therapist and they didn't know ocd or i went to a christian talk therapist and it got worse well yeah exactly because uh compulsions by proxy. You were just getting reassurance. You were confessing to them. You're doing the things that make OCD worse. And right. all this, the while I get it, if somebody's not experienced, there was a time that I wasn't trained in OCD, but the arrogance of people to say, I treat OCD and they come in. And sometimes this is people in ministry not saying i treat it but like yeah we can help you with this and so forth as opposed to yeah yeah, right 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 maybe we just say like wow that's that's really hard Mm -hmm. um can i understand that more tell me more let's pray that's a perfect place to start it's i Mm -hmm. i'm always preaching the same exact thing with curiosity like the best yeah. thing you can do is just lead with curiosity. Don't lead with absolutes mm-hmm. because you don't know, like you don't know. And even yeah. if someone who is trained and something's brought up to them, yeah. briefly, I struggle with this. They still don't know. That's what assessment is for. That is what building a therapeutic relationship is for. And, and over yeah. time learning all the dynamics of a person, Yeah, you know? And so, um, yeah, I mean, you're preaching to the choir on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Good. 
And it's, and it's, and it's that I said this the other, um, I was, when I was talking about spiritual abuse, but I think it applies here, you know, the very reasons why we critique these things is not because we bash the church. It's actually because we love the body and we love, and we believe in the potential of the body and we know the Mm -hmm. potential of the body. And because of that, we want to see people fully healed and restored through the body but that yeah. means we really have to tear down some things that's right that's right so yeah that's that's that is the the, the heart and the nature behind these types of conversations and mm-hmm. um and so yeah so yeah um gosh we i know we could talk for hours and i want to respect your time and you know everyone's time who's listening here and that being said, you know, where can people continue to follow the work that you're doing? Cause you, you have a ton of, re- he has a ton of resources. Like <laughs> as a creator, I just want to say, I really appreciate and mm. admire and honor all mm. the work that you've put in, mm. put out resources about this, that mm. many times to create is, is, um, free for us when we're putting out just public information, which we don't mind, but it does take time and it does take effort and it does take work. And so I recognize that and you've put out a lot. So um, where can people uh, check out your resources? We'll definitely include some in the show notes, but also follow, continue to follow along with the work that you're doing, especially if you guys really took from this conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much, Brittany, for asking. Uh, so website uh, definitely is the go-to spot, justinkhughes.com. Uh, if you go to the blog, I keep an active uh, blog going. Um, for the the newsletter, which is totally free, that uh, I do everything that I'm told not to do by marketers. I just give it all away for free immediately. That's what I was doing once. forever. Yeah. I <laughs> so uh, I have like, it's like five or six eBooks and uh uh, several kind of PDF tips and some uh, presentation slides downloads. But um, yeah, it's the website, justinkhughes.com slash get unstuck uh, for that specifically. Um, again, just totally for free because that's uh, that's just part of this for sure. So I don't care what the marketers say. <laughs> I used to be like, oh, I need to, you know, and, and every now and again, it depends on what it is. But mm-hmm. uh, I blogged for 10 years, giving away free journal prompts and this and that. And that. But yeah. it's because we, it's what we love. And we've also found ways to, you know, monetize our lot, monetize our lives so we can do the things that we love and make it accessible to people, which is yeah. lovely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah. So that's a starting point to update speaking and training and so forth there. And uh, you can go to the blog or videos or the link to all my socials. YouTube, Instagram is uh, more where I'll spend time, but I still post to most all the other socials. More to come. <laughs> more to come. Thanks, you guys, so much for tuning in. And thank you, Justin, so much for sharing all this insight, for having this conversation. I'm sure we'll have you back for another one because we have so much to talk about and thank you guys for listening until next time